Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, Today, I have someone with us who is a colleague of mine at Teachers College, uh, who is a professor um, and director of INCREST, the National Center for Restructuring Education, Schools, and Teaching, Dr. Tom Hatch. Welcome, Tom. Thank you, Brian. I'm really delighted to be here. Well, I'm I'm glad to have you. You know, um, I don't want I don't want us to date ourselves, okay? But um, <laughs> you know, Tom, you know, a lot of people don't know that we knew we've known each other for probably I think now about 16 years or so. If if not longer, I, I mean, I'm trying more, to think. More than that, Brian. More than that. Oh, no, 30. don't say it. Shh. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> don't say that. Don't say that. Um, okay. So <laughs> um, it is so funny, but um, both of us, at the very beginning of our careers, dare I say, the very beginning when we were five years old. I'm just kidding. But, yeah, um, yeah um, but at the very beginning of our careers met, um, as part of this great project called the Atlas Seminar. Remember those days, Tom? Yep, absolutely. And I remember you being the person kind of behind the scenes and in front as well, but um, uh, putting together all the pieces to make that seminar work. And it was a, a group. We were really fortunate, you know, thinking back, the education brains that at a very uh, early time in our careers got exposed to these monthly seminars that was uh, funded by Spencer, I think it was, yeah. uh, Spencer Foundation. And we had the likes of of people like um, Dr. James Comer, um, uh, Howard Gardner, um, Ted Sizer, Janet Whitla, and others um, who were just uh, really influential. Ed Gordon was also a part of that. Um, and, and it was just great um, getting to sit around and, and listen to those people talk and, um, and, and talk about restructuring and reform, the education reform that was back in the 90s. And here I'm saying 15, 16 years. So, okay, it's been a little longer than 15, 16 years. <laughs> Um, and, and so, um, and then I remember bumping into you one day, um, that we were both at TC. I, I don't think you knew I was at TC and I didn't know you were at TC and then exactly. we bumped into each other and, and it's great. And, and I just remember, uh, we had such good times, um, in those, um, really needed conversations back then. And so, now that seems so appropriate. You have a new book out um, called "The Education We Need for a Future We Can't Predict," and it's so timely. 
um, for this book. And I think, you know, the thing about education reform is that it's, it's, it's a cycle and that we, we are in a mindset. We have to be in a mindset that we need to constantly improve uh, that we we're probably never going to get there, but we're always got to be looking to the future and that um, uh, the future, we don't know what it is, but we're trying to prepare our students for, for that unknown. Um, so I'll yep. start with asking you uh, the question that you kind of pose in the first part of your book. Why should, should schools change? What, what do you think? What, what is the reason you're pressing and especially in this, in this book, you're talking about um, ed reform. Why do you think schools need to change? Well, I think, I mean, it's a great question to, to start off with. And I think, in, you know, there, there are a lot of debates about whether or not schools have improved or how much they've improved. And I think it's important to recognize that we have made some important strides that projects like Atlas have made some contributions, but I think for the most part they've fallen short of what are not just ambitious goals, but I think absolutely crucial goals um, for supporting, you know, much higher levels of learning for all of our students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, you know, the basic issue is, is not just in the U.S., it's a global one that as we look around the world in both developing and developing, con- uh, developed and developing contexts, we do not have schools that are adequate to the task of um, creating the educational, equitable educational opportunities and outcomes we need. So that's number mm-hmm. one. Uh, mm-hmm. We need better outcomes and we need equity. Uh, but the second reason um, is just what you were talking about. I think, you know, we've often talked about the ways in which uh, people often point out the ways in which the current school system is obsolete. Conventional schools have really not changed dramatically over the past hundred years for the most part. Um, And uh, the consequence is that we are, uh, students are not being exposed to or have the opportunity to develop all of the abilities that they need to be successful in the world today. And, and part of the title is, you know, to take aim at the, the issue that, you know, a lot of people want to focus on, let's say, 21st century skills, or they want to mm-hmm. spend a lot of time trying to identify the particular set of skills or dispositions or abilities that are going to be needed in the future. And my argument is those are important exercises, but at the end of the day, it's, it's never going to be fully known exactly what our students need, you know, kindergarten when, you know, when they're uh, finally graduating 15 or, you know, 18 years later. So we have to have an education system that is prepared for the unpredictably unpredictability of the world around mm-hmm. us. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. certainly looking 20 years ahead, we can't imagine, you know, my, my oldest daughter was born in 1998. She just graduated from uh, college. There's no way that I could have predicted that she would have been a geology major. Uh, there's also mm-hmm. no way I could have mm-hmm. predicted that in her last year of college, she would have decided that she didn't want to go into geology and that she wanted to, you know, become a science teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. there was, you know, and, and so I think the last year has shown us it's hard enough to predict 20 years in advance, but particularly when we have uncertain conditions like the pandemic, um, right. that, you know, even predicting what's happening a year ahead is, is mm-hmm. difficult. So we need a really a very different kind of education system to prepare mm-hmm. students for that unpredictable mm-hmm. future. 
Sure, sure. Now you you were talking about um, equity and and opportunity, and these are I've had a number of guests that have talked about how um, our system uh, is has has had its challenges, as we all know, with with uh, providing opportunity for all the students. Um, and and so I I just wonder. I know we part of what we were talking about all those years ago, these very same things. And, and so I, I, have we made any progress? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good, it's a, it's a good question. And and I think the way I try to look at it, I I, I think in, you know, Tyak and Cuban in the book, Tinkering Toward Utopia, which I continue to draw Uh, heavily have, pointed out that, yes, there is progress in some ways, and there's even regress in other ways. There's progress mm-hmm. for some students and, and not for others. And, I, you know, I think it's clear that, that you know, some students who have been systematically disadvantaged uh, by the system, who were excluded through, you know, the uh, baked-in systemic, you know, racism that's within our society in the U.S. and within our schools, you know, that has disadvantaged students. Nonetheless, there are some ways in which uh, more black, Latin, you know, uh, indigenous students, others are included in the system more, that are more successful than they may have been under other circumstances. But whatever improvements we've made, it's clear that it's far from enough. So part of the point I want to try and make in the book is that there are really concrete, clear improvements we can make in schools right now. Uh, mm-hmm. In many cases, there are things, it, it's not about inventing some, something new. It's, it's committing to stop doing things we don't work, we know that don't work, like tracking, for example, uh, particularly when that is, um, the tracking is so connected to uh, racist practice, practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also means you know, things like the pandemic pointed out to us. I mean, why did we need the pandemic to know that, you know, all kids access to the Internet and the capacity to, you know, uh, engage with learning online? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, even one of the chair, uh, the chair uh, members of the FCC has declared that we can solve this problem in the U.S. We can get all kids connected to the Internet. And then my right. point is, if, if, you know, if we can do it, why don't we do, you know, let's do that. Let's do those things that we know how to do that we know we're going to address in particular the needs of those students who've been disadvantaged from the system. And this is what I call right. identifying the high leverage problems for making progress right, right. now. Right. Well, well and, and you, you point out that, uh, that some of this, these are issues that a number of scholars have pointed out uh, before the pandemic that, you know, that we should be doing some of these things, and but we don't. And so there are, as you mentioned, some groups of, of students where there's been progress, but others, uh, there hasn't been the same level of progress. Um, but if, if in some cases where good, solid arguments have been presented um, for these changes, why don't they make the change? And, I, and the they, I'm talking about individual localities, uh, don't make the changes. I mean, we know money notwithstanding, but the, that there are, there are some um, 
people who who really believe that there's a a, a deliberate effort to keep some some people uh, away from being well well educated. What what do you think the reason is that by and large uh, schools don't change or systems don't change? Yeah, again, a, a critical question, and it's and it's part of a key. It's actually the second part of the book. It, after talking about why we need to change, it's it's thinking systemically about why schools don't change. And mm-hmm. you know, I have no doubt there are some people out there, whether they're policymakers or you know community members, you know, who, whoever it is, who who really want to preserve a system that is inequitable. I, I don't think I, I am hopeful that that is not, you know, the, the, the majority. I think we continue to see and experience and work with people uh, who are really dedicated to the goals of improvement and creating more equitable systems. But as you know, mm-hmm. as an education leader yourself and working with education leaders, it's a multi-layered problem. It's a nested mm-hmm. problem. So one mm-hmm. of the issues that Tayek and Cuban highlight is, you know, that, you know, a teacher can try to make changes in their classroom, but their capacity to do that is either limited or supported by the school context in which they sit. The principal's ability to make those changes at the school level is dependent on not only their position within the district and the state education system, at least in the U.S., but also, you know, what's happening in the community. Uh, And, of course, that community is nested within a regional and state and, you know, national political uh, structure. And there are forces and pressures at every level which um, reinforce the status quo and the Mm -hmm. inequities that are already baked into the system. And, Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, my argument is, Let's get a better understanding of of the interrelationships of these factors, of what can be, you know, why uh, our reform efforts have have failed at each of these levels. And and I think it's important to to emphasize there have been a lot of individual successes, incredible teachers doing incredible things, incredible schools, you know, going against uh, the odds that that you might anticipate. Our problem has been to um, make sure that the, improvements and the more powerful learning experiences are available on a much wider scale. Sure. That's where we've fallen short. So we have to learn about from our mistakes and commit ourselves ultimately, I think, to, uh, you know, a long-term commitment to transform not just schools, but our education system as as well. So that's why Mm -hmm. I not only talk about making improvements right now, but then engaging in the long-term work together to rethink fundamentally uh, what we want to see in education over the next 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lot of that, you know, the, we've had people at this work for a very long time. You know, if you think about uh, the organizations that we used to belong to, uh, even before them, there were groups of people who were trying to uh, push the envelope and and push the idea of of school improvement and school reform. And so, uh, for some of you listening, may not be aware of the project that I'm talking about. Uh, that we uh, where Tom and I originally met was this project called Atlas, and it um, the it stood for Authentic Teaching, Learning, and Assessment for All Students. 
I think uh, I think yeah. the all students was in there, yeah. um, and and so it 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 brought together kind of the the work of some very well known education leaders and researchers and projects. And at the time, I was on the the staff at the Yale Child Study Center. And Tom, I think you were you were working for Project Zero at Harvard, right? Right. Yeah, um, exactly. And and so one part of it was kind of this where we went and we talked on a monthly basis um, about the issues we faced in reform and education. But then um, on the other side was the Atlas Project, um, where there were school districts, and one of them so it was Gorham, Maine, Prince George's County, Maryland, and Norfolk, Virginia, where right. we we um, kind of studied the work that was going on there, but they were they were Atlas schools, and they did uh, a number of of interdisciplinary uh, projects and 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 put in place school processes that were uh, experimental in some cases, but uh, to try to prove that when you do school this way, um, you get good outcomes. Um, so, t- so Tom, I know you were involved many years later to wrap up the project. Um, what what exactly would you say was the biggest learning from that? You know, that effort, uh, the amount of energy and money that went into that. What was the thing that? And maybe there are several, but what what do you think we learned most from that effort? Well, uh, we learned a lot from that, and I, I do talk about it somewhat in the book, and I've written, you know, articles about it, so if folks are, are interested in those things, I can certainly share more information and resources about it. But I, I, I think, you know, first of all, it's, it's important to understand and underscore what you said before, was that the whole point of Atlas was in the early 90s was the sense, and this was not just in our project, but all across the U.S., and I, I think in many cases, you know, globally, was the idea that single focus on curriculum or professional development or assessment, uh, you know, or developing a new curriculum program, these were not sufficient to really make the fundamental changes in schooling that we needed um, to create a much more uh, a, a powerful learning experiences and more equitable outcomes for mm-hmm. all uh, students. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to bring together these different approaches that pioneered by Jim Comer and Ted Sizer and Howard Gardner and, and Janet Whitlin, our colleagues at the Education Development Center, and to create a much more comprehensive kind of restructured model for schooling that would engage, you know, community teachers and parents in part of the, you know, reform process. I think, you know, what, what I've highlighted that fundamentally that idea, which is also reflected in the Nation at Risk report that came out in 1983, was the feeling that we had all of the resources, we had all the knowledge we needed in order to change mm-hmm. schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think one of the things we learned is we don't. Even those that were the most advanced at the time don't have all the answers and there's no way that we can create a package that's going to solve every problem. Mm. Um, and I, to me, you know, some people may say, well, that's really depressing. And what we learned is we don't know enough. My point is we learned that we'll never know enough, that it's always mm-hmm. going to be slightly beyond 
our comprehension in part because we're trying to adjust you know, to the world as it is, to the next generation of students who present new possibilities. Um, and, and, you know, that really requires a level of humility um, and uh, an effort to, you know, be engaged in constant learning that I think is absolutely essential mm -hmm. to this, uh, to the movement forward. But the other thing that I really learned in working, you know, directly with you and your colleagues at the um, Yale Study Center and the, and the Comer Development Program and, uh, and the Coalition of Essential Schools and EDC, one of the reasons we created the seminar was because we realized that we started the Atlas Project too quickly, which in part was mm. dependent on the funding, and we didn't right. really understand each other. We didn't understand right. our approaches, and it wasn't just a matter of understanding our tactics. In many cases, we didn't understand why we were doing the things we were doing in our, um, in our different organizations and how those reflected our own experiences, uh, our own backgrounds and biographies, and, and our own work. So a critical lesson for me of the Atlas Project was that while the vis a common vision is important, we need the network of relationships that enables us to develop a common understanding of what our, common, of our interests are, what our needs are, um, and it's that common understanding which helps us to develop a collective responsibility to ensure that all our needs are met mm -hmm. and that it's not mm -hmm. just about us carrying out whatever initiative we think is going to be most effective. Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I liked so much um, and I was why I was so uh, uh, anxious to read your book was that you know, a lot of times we we look for solutions in what some of our researchers, such as yourself, will will put out. And what I what I really appreciated that you stayed away from is a a set of solutions, rather some principles um, that mm -hmm. you that you put out that people need to really understand. And and that's because. It's really challenging, um, not to mention throughout the United States, to come up with a single solution to um, a problem that exists. Because one that exists one way in New York City, the same problem in San Francisco has a different nuanced uh, solution. Right. Um, and yep. And so... Um, one one of the chapters you talk about the conditions for learning, uh, I, you know, I've often struggled with that because conditions are different depending on where yeah. you are, right? And right. so um, I have students that are are looking for solutions where and and I start by saying don't just take an idea that you heard at a conference and say I'm going to plug it in here because it worked there. Um, right. It may not work in your context, and so context really, really matters. And so I, you know, it, it's 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 a real challenge. And so, so what what advice do you give to the turnaround principal out there who is is trying to understand kind of the first step in in how they move forward? Uh, in in making decisions around their their curriculum, um, what, what advice do you give them about where to start in setting up the right conditions for learning? 
Yeah, I mean, again, great, great questions. And I think we have a lot to learn from uh, community organizers. So the part of the book draws from my experiences working with people like Ernie Cortez and community organizers in the southwestern United States who begin uh, not with a solution, but they begin with a very thoughtful process of community engagement, which is not, you know, unlike the approach that I think the Comer School Development Program has has developed. But the idea is that um, uh, the idea is that you know you go from door to door, whether it's inside the school and knock on the door of every teacher, or you um, you know you go through the community and knock on every door in the community, and you go to the politicians as well, and you say, you know, what are you most concerned about? Your first step isn't to solve a problem; it's to try to understand what the problems are and what the problems are that people care about, um, and then to surface those common interests to try to develop the set of relationships so that you can work on those problems uh, together. And that's what I call identifying these high leverage problems. And mm -hmm. then de developing, you can draw on outside resources. You can look for other people who've addressed similar problems and what they've done about it. But um, your challenge is then to think about how, you, how to use that information expertise and adapt it to your particular situation. And I call these mm -hmm. the micro-innovations. Your job isn't to take someone else's innovation and plug it in. It's to try and figure out how to take whatever resources and tools you have and adapt them so they can be a community. Mm -hmm. And it, in that sense, I really want leaders to understand that, you know, in a, they're, they're not so much the designers, you know, they're not the person who says, here's the solution, follow me. They're like, they're conductors. They're like the conductors in front of the orchestra trying to find out who has, you know, what, uh, what funds of knowledge, what sources of expertise, what resources that we can bring to bear collectively on these issues. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you uh, for that point. And, and I know we, we're, we're running out of time, but there are a couple other things I wanted to uh, bring up. And, and the, the other, not so much for people at the school level, as we were just talking about, but at the district level, um, when you, you have this, this one sentence that you pull out in one of the chapters, and it stands by itself, and it reverberated for me off the page. Um, and the sentence was, the limits of scaling up highlight another critical principle of school improvement. And I thought about the work that I've done over the years, but particularly one of the things that we learned from Atlas during my time there, but also in uh, the Child Study Center, was about scaling up. And so this is more a matter for superintendents that are out there is about how difficult it is to take an idea and and spread it across a lot of different schools. And because right. of how complex it is, um, which, by the way, is the reason, you know, when I first came to uh, Columbia, I, I was the director of the doctoral program, and we, we um, were um, – training individuals to be urban school superintendents. And, and then um, the opportunity came up to lead the principal preparation program that we call Summer Principals Academy, um, but aspiring 
uh, leaders to be in charge of schools? What what was the the key that got me to switch to take on that responsibility was what became the realization for me that the one of the the, the key levers in changing education is at the school level and Mm -hmm. district is district level change is really really difficult um and and so i you know what i thought is i could have the biggest impact on education by training leaders of schools Mm -hmm. um to make the change and and so but i think it can't be overstated how important it is to really understand and grapple with the difficulty of scaling up by taking an idea and making it apply in multiple settings. And so I, for me, I just, I want to thank you for highlighting that um, because that that's, that's where a lot of superintendents fail. In fact, you know, and we've, we've, I'm sure you've probably seen it as well. Yeah. And I think it really calls on superintendents in particular to, um, to recognize their role in creating the conditions in which students, teachers, and principals, and, you know, the community as a whole can be successful. It's, mm-hmm. it's not about implementation of a particular initiative. It's providing tools, resources, supports, expertise, but also the time, the space um, to figure out what's gonna, what the particular needs are and and how to address them. And so mm-hmm. I, I see a really critical role for superintendents and district leaders, but also, you know, policymakers more broadly in playing a role in helping to um, build the constituency uh, for support for public education, for helping mm-hmm. us develop the understanding and the relationships uh, that will enable us to work together. So for me, a critical part of the book is is really ending with an understanding that at the same time that, you know, we're finding these high leverage problems and making progress, we also have to be developing a a climate change like social movement in Mm -hmm. which we are engaging everyone together in developing a collective responsibility for ensuring that the education systems we have moving forward are much more equitable and much more effective Mm -hmm. than they have been Mm -hmm. in the past. And Mm -hmm. that's a social movement that's going to take multi-generations. It's going to Mm -hmm. outlast our current superintendents and educators. It's going to outlast you and me. And I want to make Mm -hmm. a contribution to that future effort and know that we're building on what we're doing today so that we can be more effective in the future. But that really requires a shift in education leaders' perspective to think beyond their own tenure and how they're contributing to change beyond you know, their own, um, you know, years of, of work. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well stated. Well stated. Well, Tom, thank you so much. I know you have a lot going on. Um, I just, I, you know, I think I have found uh, the text I've been looking for for my new school design course. Um, and, and so I really hope, um, I hope to have you come and talk to my class next January um, if you're available and have you, you know, do a kind of a cameo, but I think, I mean, this is well considered. So for those of you who are interested in getting uh, Tom's latest book is the education we need 
for a future we can't predict. And it's uh, uh, Thomas Hatch, and it's it's um, uh, the publisher is Corwin Press. And I'm just I'm really uh, thankful that you have. Uh, you agreed to come on and share some of your ideas. I'm sure people will go out. I'd recommend, I'd strongly, strongly recommend this um, for uh, leaders out there uh, in a variety of contexts to take a look at some of the ideas here um, because it's really not about specific solutions. It's about mindsets and principles to operate uh, by. So thanks so much, Tom. And and uh, to our listeners, thank you uh, for being a part of this again this week. And um, until next time, go well, stay well. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much, Brian. Take care.